I'm John Ryan, CEO of Healthy Place to Work, a business dedicated to bringing you insight so you can improve the health of your workforce, workplace, and overall organization to achieve more sustainable results. Right now, we're putting the finishing touches to our Work Healthy book that's been published by Wiley and due for launch later this year. As part of that process, we've interviewed a range of thought leaders in this space, but also exemplar companies who've shared with us how they've made changes in how they operate to allow them to create work and a workplace that's healthier for everybody. We realized that these interviews were packed full of stories, information, tips that probably won't make it into the final Work Healthy book because of space restrictions. So we've decided to launch a podcast series so you can listen at your leisure. Today, we start with the father of HR, Dave Ulrich. Apart from being a thorough gentleman, which he absolutely is, uh, he's professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. He's written over 30 books, has created the hugely influential Ulrich HR model, and has consulted with over half of the Fortune 200 group of companies. Listen as he shares his insights from a lifetime of practice. I'm joined by my colleague TJ Byrne for the interview, where Dave shares his thoughts on the three most important trends that will shape everything in the new world of work, how leadership looks in 2022 and beyond, why talking about hybrid working is, according to Dave, the wrong conversation to be having, and why creating a psychologically safe workplace is the bedrock of success. Let's join the conversation when I asked Dave whether the world of work right now is harder than it's ever been. I mean, every era has its own challenges, I think. I, uh, I think organizations, philosophically, and I'm going to go back into my history a little bit, yeah. I think organizations are a setting that shapes the nature of the world. I just, where you live, where you work, where you play, where you worship, People matter, but all of our research, and if you see me, I do this all the time. My fingers represent talent. My fist mm. represents the team or the organization, the competence. This is competence. This is capability. And I make that distinction pretty clearly. You've got great people and you got great systems. The system outperforms the individual over and over and over again. And so you fight a war with talent. You win a war with organization. And, and how do you... How do you create that organization? That's been my quest for mm. decades is how and, and do you build organizations that win? Because you then sort of have put forward the, the reinventing the organization. So you're only reinventing it because fundamentally it's not working to its capability, maybe. So where do you see? Well, do you, I mean, the question is, do you reinvent somebody's personality or do you evolve it? I mean, to say, John, when you were 20 years younger, your personality was wrong. No, it wasn't wrong. It was it was your personality. Yeah. But I'm betting you're different today than you were 25 years ago. Mm. Uh, your partner hopes yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, that was a joke. I didn't mean <laughs> <laughs> My wife hopes I'm different every day. Yeah. <laughs> and so it doesn't mean your personality was flawed. It just means I think we created new ways of thinking about that that persona for an individual or that organization. And for me, the evolution, and it's in some of that book, is I think we used to think about organizations as hierarchies. Mm. So what's the structure? What's the role? And we define ourselves by our role. The The headline is pretty easy. Organization is not structure, it's capability. That's been kind of my mantra for 40 years. The first book was organizational capability, that 
if you admire a company and you talk about great places to work, and I don't know who's on top of that list. It could be Google. It could be, uh, I don't know who's on top of that list. Who's on top of that list today? Unilever. I, 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 I would no say idea. the States is probably Salesforce. I'm not Salesforce, sure. Good. So if I went to someone and said, what company do you admire? And they'd say Salesforce, or they'd say um, uh, somebody else. I'd say, how many levels of management? I actually do this exercise a lot. And nobody ever said, I have no clue. And it's because I don't care. I mean, I don't care what your hierarchy is. I don't care what your roles are. What I care is why, what Salesforce does that makes them an admirable company. For me, that's the simplest definition of capability. I admire a company because of what they're known for and good at doing. And when you think of an organization that way, structure becomes less relevant. Roles become less relevant. And what matters is, have you identified the capabilities that allow you to be admired and successful in the marketplace? That's another bias I've got. But uh, so that, that, that's, the, that's the evolution of organization. I don't, I don't think it's wrong. It's like somebody saying, I'm going to describe your personality by how, what's your color of your hair? What's the color of your eyes? What's the, what's the, somebody sent me an app and they said, Dave, I can tell by your facial uh, geography or whatever it is, physical features, what kind of leader you are. And I said, you want me to be the before picture? I mean, <laughs> and, 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 and we look at your person's more, your, your physical shape defining you. That doesn't define, I mean, that's what structure, your, your shape, yeah. your morphology. I think what defines your personality is how you respond and, and, and the big five and that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I love organizations. I am passionate about organizations. I believe organizations can be good or not good. And uh, I'm intrigued with how do you create organizations that are that are successful? So, I mean, like when, when I'd be looking at organizations and see, you know, ones that have frustrated people who are in those organizations, oftentimes I see that the interaction of maybe power and authority and um, control um, transparency or their lack of um, rules um, can sometimes frustrate even down to like performance management and force distribution bell curves and the like I like if if you could have taken away some of those things over the years no, let me let me go back everything you just said roles rules performance control is an assumption of a hierarchy mm -hmm. and so when I change your assumption to the assumption of an organization as a set of capabilities none of those issues are irrelevant as relevant. I mean, it doesn't matter what your role is. Do mm. you have the competence individually to build the capability that helps us win in the marketplace? Mm. Roles become less relevant. Control systems become less relevant. Performance management becomes less relevant or changed. And so I think it's easy to create a straw man of what was. Um, I, I really liked where you were going earlier. You talked about, um, let me get it. You talked about pathogenic and hiding about our past and solutionogenic focusing on the future. I, I tend to not focus as much on what was. I'd rather say, yeah, that's an organizational model that existed. It was built on the Catholic Church and not Catholic Church because they're good or evil. It's just they were the hierarchy in the German military, Max Weber. That model is gone. Um, and there was a new model of organization that is a built around capabilities and we don't know how to do it yet. We're learning, but, but yeah. so anyway, I, 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 I suppose turning to that, because I mean, you, what you put forward, the, the market orientated sort of ecosystem rather than nearly near organization. And you talk about Tencent and, and that approach. Um, could you talk maybe a little bit about what you, what you see that as been? Yeah, I mean, let me go back to the premise. It's 
and by the way, it was fun to do that book because I think some of the uh, the Chinese success we often attribute to the geopolitical situation there, and and some of that's true. But they've got an organizational model that seems to work: Tencent, Alibaba, Hire, Huawei. And what you do is you say, let's organize outside in. And I can't believe I've talked for so long, uh, for 15, 12 minutes without even talking. My assumption is that the best thing you can give an employee in a company, and I'd love to start this way. I did a session yesterday. I'm going to do one today. Is that meaning, believe, which is purpose, meaning, become, learning, growth, belong, community. Those are kind of the three elements that that I think a lot of the Bandura's work, and you quoted Aaron, whom I don't know, the coherence work. I don't know that work. I know Jeff Pfeffer's work. But believe, become, belong, safety. Um, which of those matters most, or is it all of them? And they say, it's all of them. And I say, you're wrong. The best thing you can give an employee is a company that succeeds in the marketplace. Because unless and until you succeed in the marketplace, you don't have purpose, you don't have belonging, you don't have an organization. There is no workplace. Mm. And I see one of the flaws in in the people field being so much focus on internal well-being, internal employee experience. When the employee experience buzz, and there's buzzes every few years, became popular four or five years ago, I looked through a bunch of books and I looked through a bunch of articles trying to say, what can I learn about employee experience that builds it was less than 5% on customer. It was just, you know, let's make people feel good. Good. I worked at digital equipment. I looked at Toys R Us. I worked at Circus City. I worked at uh, Enron. I worked at GE. I worked at Eastman Kodak. Every one of those companies was iconic in employee well-being. And they're all gone because they did not connect in the marketplace and succeed. And, and there's millions of people that are now dislocated because they haven't been successful in the marketplace. So I'm not afraid to, by the way, that's not just greed. And I think TJ, you said, we don't want just an investor focus, but let's be clear. If there's not marketplace success with customers and investors, you're going to become a consultant. I mean, uh, that's a bad joke, but you're, <laughs> you're, you're going to be out of work because, and you've got to then link the two that that's not an inherent either, or that that's the work I've done. The first book, I did was organizational capability, the organization logic, competing from the inside out. One of the last books was Victory Through Organization, or no, one of the last books, I can't remember the book titles, Outside In. And mm -hmm. so I, I say, I don't care where you start. You can start with the individual, the inside, but you got to do it so that customers win. If your employee experience, well-being, health, mental health, if it doesn't lead to customer value, you're not going to have mental health because you're not going to work. On the other hand, if your customer experience is not linked because of your employee experience, so I use the two, by the way, I love simplicity, because of and so that. If you can't link the inside and the outside, inside so that outside, outside because of inside, you're not going to navigate the paradox of today's work. And, and so I actually get a little worried about that, that a lot of us in the a lot of people make fun of HR. I define HR as talent, organization, and leadership. Those are the elements of HR, um, or I call it human capability now. Um, if they don't link to the outside, are we the employer of choice of employees our customers would choose? Mm -hmm. Does our culture reflect the identity of our company in the mind of our best customer? Do our leadership skills reflect what we promise our customer?
if we do an advertising campaign on social media or wherever, and we say to the customer, we're going to be innovative, we're going to be whatever it is, we're going to be low cost. Are those promises of the customers showing up in our competence model? Are they showing up in our training? Are they showing up in performance management? If they're not, we've disconnected the inside and the outside, and we're going to end up in one of those other company positions. So that's, by the way, that's a long diatribe, and I'm sorry, but that's for me so, so central to the thinking that I see a lot of people right now, it's all about employee experience. It's all about employee well-being, which I believe in totally, so that customers have well-being. Our correlations on that, we did a long time ago, were, and they consistently are the same. Others have done the studies better than us. The relationship between employee experience and customer experience is generally 0.6 to 0.8. That if you have a good employee experience, you have a good customer experience. And the employee experience is often the lead indicator. Mm -hmm. So if employee experience goes up, customer experience goes up, and it's the lead indicator on a downward trend. Mm -hmm. And if employee experience goes down, customer experience goes down. Uh, and in general, we found, and I'll shut up, we found that about a, it's 10 to 5 to 2.5. About a 10% change in employee experience will lead to a 5% change in customer and a 2.5% change in investor. So you, you, you get a causation and you get a lead. And the other final insight is the employee experience that matters the most are the employees who directly interact with customers. So if you have an employee with a negative experience, my advice to a company is promote them to corporate because <laughs> they do no damage. Because yeah. the damage is... When I go to a, wherever the hotel was that you just had your, your conference in Dublin, when I go to that hotel, my experience is not the senior leaders at headquarters. It's the, the, the guest services person who checks me in, the, the man or woman who cleans my room. And so anyway, that's for me, and I, I'm going to stop. But I just for me, that's the outside-in logic that becomes so critical so that we create a virtuous cycle. Final example. The business roundtable just did a, about a year and a half ago, a big post profits and purpose, profits and people. And I pushed back and I said, I'd change one word and I'd say profit through purpose, profit through people that don't make this sound like disconnected events that don't mention an employee experience without mentioning the customer. And I promised them finally, I'm almost done. You've let me vent. <laughs> we in HR worry about people. Here's an insight. Employees are people. So are customers, so yep. are investors, so are communities. And our insights around people should cross that boundary inside and outside the organization. And often they stop at the organizational boundary. That, that when those insights about people and well-being, my job as a company is to create employee well-being so customers who use my products or service will have their well-being. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Absolutely. So in terms of everything that's going on, leadership has fundamentally changed, or has it? By the way, one of my other biases is I like to build on the past and say the past is great. I, I you know, yes, it has, it's the same as organizations. They've changed, and I think it's evolved, not changed. The, the basics of leadership, I think, are the same. I, 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 we did a book called Leadership Code 10 or 12 years ago. We said there's five, by the way, my PhD, ooh, since you're, on video or since you this is my dissertation from decades ago and it's a numerical taxonomy so it's a statistical study of how do you create simplicity um by the way i've got to show just to have a sense of humor because i do a lot of videos 
back then they would sell them on microfilms. And so they sold it and I got paid $11 and 85 cents for one year of work. So that's, uh, that's kind of cool. Uh, I kept that cause it reminds me of how irrelevant my work is. Um, but, uh, so I love to simplify. And we said, when we looked at leadership, there's five things and I'll be real quick with this. Leaders have to set strategy. Where are we going? That's pretty simple. They got to get it done, execute. How do you get there? They got to manage their people today. They got to manage their people for the future. That's human capability, organization, uh, culture, and they got to take care of themselves. So we have five pieces of leadership. We call it the leadership code or DNA, strategy, execution, talent, human capability. And in the middle is personal proficiency. Take care of yourself first so that you can take care of others. Those five have evolved um, because I don't think leadership is a role. I think it's a relationship. And I think in the COVID crisis, leadership is not what role you play. It's what relationship you build around those five things. Strategy, do you inspire people across boundaries? We want to be inspired. And again, that's not new. None of this is brand new. I did hear Peter Drucker once talk because I'm so old. He was older. <laughs> Uh, and he said the greatest leadership in the history of the world was the pyramids. We haven't learned anything since, uh, which I really admired him saying that. Um, but in strategy, you got to inspire. In, in execution, you got to build a system, not just about talent, but about systems that succeed with data and analytics. In talent, you've got to manage the mental health. I think that is such a critical issue with people today. Uh, their emotional well-being, believe, become, belong. With human capability, you got to empower the next generation. Um, and then at personal, you got to take care of yourself so you can take care of others. So those are the, I, the principles, I think, are much the same. But I think the activities or practices vary. And I, I'm, I'm interested because, you know, in the data that we get back, um, one of the things uh, it, it sort of asks is uh, whether or not the senior leaders care about my health and well-being and whether or not their role um, leaders for healthy behaviors and invariably in a lot of cases employees don't see the leaders as role models for healthy behaviors at all in fact they could be some of the sickest people in the organization so you know this this kind of system that is presently in place oftentimes and, and worryingly talking to some females who are just below uh, the senior level they have decided not to go into that senior level because they're not willing to sacrifice themselves and their well-being for the sake of you know success in the organization so do, do you think leaders are starting to realize the importance of actually looking after themselves number one so that they are actually um healthy but number two because of you know the modeling piece that it, the message it sends out to the rest of the organization again it's it's fascinating to see data the leaders i coach I mean, there's a distribution. If you want to find a leader who's physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually unhealthy, I can find you one. Uh, it won't take me long. If you want to find leaders at that other end who really do care for themselves and care for their people, I can find them as well. So, I mean, I think we have a distribution. Um, I don't know what the percentages would be in terms of where we expect them. Uh, I, I've coached leaders on both extremes. Uh, I generally find, maybe it's a small sample I've got, I generally find leaders I work with pretty savvy and pretty, pretty sensitive. They want to help their company succeed. 
There are some leaders who are heavily narcissistic and it's about them. I think they get exposed over time uh, because people see them. Um, one of the major themes, in, I, I see three, ma- I'm going to answer that in a broad way. I see three major themes in this future of work. One, and, and TJ, you mentioned it, and I love it. Uh, you said people have had different experiences in the pandemic. I call that personalization. I think we're seeing mental health personalization, hybrid work. Well, you got to personalize hybrid work. There's a chunk of employees who are not going to work at home. Doctors are going to be in an office. Uh, uh, Manufacturing people are going to be in the office. Uh, Personalization. And for some, hybrid work is brand new. For many of us, hybrid work has been around for 25 years. I dedicated my first book to the Toshiba laptop computer because I wrote the book on an airplane. I mean, <laughs> I, I, the two of you, I, I, anyway, I, a hybrid work. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's one trend, personalization. Yeah. A second trend, I think, is uncertainty. We live in a world that's increasingly uncertain. And you alluded to that beautifully, John, that, yeah. that I don't know. I get so frustrated when somebody says, let me tell you the new normal. And I say, wow, you must be rich. Because in January of 2020, you bought Zoom, Tesla, Amazon, and Intel stock. And they said, no, I didn't. I said, you don't know the new normal. I mean, we think we know it. And then the tragedy of the Ukraine 90 yep. days ago happens. And, 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 and let me tell you where I think we're, I talked about personalization a little bit, where I think we're going with uncertainty is I tried to chase uncertainty by saying the military has VUCA, volatile, uncertain, Uh, finance has risk, religion has faith. Those are all terms for uncertainty. It finally hit me this year, because I think about this a lot. In a world of uncertainty, don't chase the uncertainty, refocus on what you're certain about. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend, he has two boys uh, in their early 20s. Do you know what they're gonna study at school? I'm not exactly sure. Do you know who they're gonna build relationships with? I'm not exactly sure. Do you know what their job's gonna be? I'm not exactly sure. Do you know their lifestyle? No. You know, in endless uncertainty. So Chris, what do you know about your sons? And he said, what do you mean? Do you love them? And he stopped and he almost got emotional. He said, no question. And I said, go there. I can't predict what's gonna to happen to the world, but I can predict what I control. And I think, John, you alluded to it, the, one of the greatest sources of well-being, you talked about coherence, the work that I didn't, I, I don't know the author, I wrote it down. If I know what I'm certain about, I think I can cope with a lot of uncertainty. Mm. For me, that is so, that's, by the way, that a personal level, you say, what's an idea that's been helpful? That's helpful for me. Mm. I don't know if I'm going to travel or not. I just don't know. I don't even know exactly what I'm going to study. I'm doing a lot of work right now on humanitarian response, some of the Ukrainian work. I don't know what I'm going to study in six months. I, I don't know. I ho- so what do I know? I know that I'm going to learn. For mm-hmm. me, that's my core value. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I write a lot of books and LinkedIn articles nobody reads. I know I'm going to try to turn my learning into value for someone else. Those are my values. So when I work with leaders in the last three to four months, I don't say, you know, let's obsess about all the uncertainty. No, you don't know any of that. <laughs> I just had a fly come in the room. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not having a, a moment, but I, I, didn't, I didn't know a fly was going to come in the room. And I'm looking that's around. Uncertainty. Oh, I open the <laughs> that's uncertainty. And I can't predict that. 
but I know I'm going to learn. I'm going to have fun. What do you know? And I think you can ask it to people and organizations. What does your organization know they will respond with? And when we're certain, then the uncertainty becomes less of an obsessive. So three themes going forward. I hit two and I was going to focus on the third. I did too much. Personalization. Yeah. Uncertainty and certainty and uncertainty. And the third one, and John, it's the question you raised, navigating paradox. I think great leaders in all of our research navigate the inherent tension of paradox. I have to worry about the employee. I care, I'm concerned, I have empathy, the ease, I call it empathy, the four E's, emotion, empathy, energy, experience, and the C's, care, compassion. And I have to worry about success in the marketplace. If I don't worry about both of those, hmm. I'm going to fail on both. Yeah. My job is to navigate. We use the term navigate because you don't manage it away. It's never going to go away. You navigate that inherent tension. And I think that's a theme that we're going to see more of. Yeah. Hybrid work. We're going to see work in the office and we're going to see work remote. Okay. How do I navigate that? Yeah. I'm going to see my doing work as an individual contributor and uh, talent and team. How do I navigate that paradox? Um, how do I navigate profit? That's profit and purpose. How do I navigate those two? And, and my answer to that navigation is look at what the North Star is. That's Steve Covey stuff, which is customer value. I navigate that tension so that my customer has an experience that keeps me alive as a company. Uh, because if I don't stay alive as a company, there is no more paradox in my Absolutely. company. I'm gone. Absolutely. And so where do I need to lean? Is it more employee or is it more team? Where do I need to lean now or navigate? Is it more short-term or more long-term? And the answer is it's going to vary but it's going to vary based on what will help that customer stay connected. So that's mm. personalization, uncertainty through certainty and paradox through navigation. Those are the, those are the three themes that I see in our work today. And Dave, I know you, you're very passionate about mental health um, and you, you wrote a LinkedIn article, um, very detailed LinkedIn article on that. And so what advice would you give to organizations who are trying to kind of, navigate as as you use that word uh this whole area of of mental health because um first 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 i would say make sure you connect it to strategic and stakeholder outcomes mental health is a means not an end you want to improve mental health and the employee experience so that so that your business strategy evolves and a lot of companies are becoming more digital in their strategy. How do you do that? So that strategy, so that your customers have a better experience, so that your investors have a higher intangible value, so that you have a social citizenship. Make sure, that's my first take, make sure that you link what you know and do around your employee mental health to the outcomes and stakeholders. And, and do you think leaders are getting that? Have they made that connection? Not enough. Yeah. Not enough. Not yeah. enough. Because... I think we all, and by the way, I don't know if I make it either. I mean, I, I still fall, you know, we, I'm a hypocrite as are many of us, but, but so what I coach, we just taught a course at the university and one of the participants after two weeks said, I got it. I've got a roadmap for employee experience and I'm going to go share it with my business team. It's going to include DEI. It's going to include leadership training. It's going to include all these cool things that and I was taking TJ notes on all the things it should include. It, it will include hybrid work. It will include, anyway, all this stuff. And I'm going to go share it. And I said, don't you dare. 
She said, why? And I said, don't start there. She, but, but you've spent two weeks convincing me and I have failed you miserably. She said, why? Start with your business team with what does it take to succeed in our market today? What does it take to succeed? Is it innovation of product? Is it global expansion? Is it customer? Is it cost? What does it take for us to succeed in our marketplace today? Well, we've got to become more digital. We've got to become more customer centric around a new customer engagement strategy. Super. Get clear about that. Then coherence, the word that Aaron may have used. Aaron Antelski, yeah. Because of the employee engagement roadmap I'm going to build. I now, I've got to, and again, I said, I don't care if I start inside out or outside in, but if I don't connect those two, it's going to become a fad. It's going to become another shiny object. And so she said, oh, that's what you've been trying to tell me for two weeks. And I said, yeah, and you don't get it. I mean, what's the most important thing that a business or an HR leader can give an employee? Perp believe, become, belong. That's what I often talk about, safety. Although, nope, you're not right. It's a company that succeeds in the marketplace because if you don't get that success, anyway, I, I started a session last week with a hundred senior business. It was one of my only in-person sessions, TJ, and I hope to be in person in Dublin again. Yeah. And I started, I said, what do these companies have in common? Digital, Eastman Kodak, Enron, what I talked, started yeah. with was Circuit City, Toys R Us, and somebody yelled, they all failed. And I said, that's 50%. I worked for all of them. <laughs> as a consultant and they all failed because they they did they were all successful and they failed to adapt to the market mm -hmm. and uh so i again i i interrupted you and i was rude about that john but i want to be a, 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 a an old term that the two of you may appreciate a broken record uh <laughs> i want to be redundant that if we don't succeed in the marketplace we're not going to have a workplace. And, and that's not as easy. I don't know the Dublin date. I wish I had it. You may have it. Of the original Fortune 500 in the U.S., today 50 are still alive. Hmm. 50. 90% oh, failure of the largest firms in the world. But is that okay? Because, I mean, organizations aren't, you know, I know built to last or whatever. But, I mean, life is changing. Organizations change. Customers change. Trends change. People change. So is that not okay that the organization lasts until it makes sense for it to fail and somebody else take over? Is that Absolutely. failure or is that just a time Creating frame? Destruction. Isn't there an economist? Was it Joseph Stiglitz got a Nobel Prize? Somebody got a prize for that. Creative destruction. Uh, yeah, I, I, survival of the fittest. Yeah it's, yeah, it's I don't. You know, it's not bad, but it is bad for those million employees yep. that now they don't have any purpose because they don't have a job. Um, they don't have meaningful work because there is no work and they got to go find it. Now, again, I think that's where you take care of your people so they can take care of others and themselves. Yeah. But, yeah. but I'm, by the way, I, I tend to be, I'm not a horrible capitalist. I think, I think the way you treat your people will eventually lead to those organizations having a better survival, much better survival rate. Yeah. And I, the suppose, data yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think if you equip people with the skills and knowledge and, learning so that they're not dependent on one organization that they can move quickly to totally another. Agree. I think totally that, that, that could be a good place. So well, in fact, I, I've coached I, people and I've said, your goal is that every one of your employees has three job offers. Yeah. Because they're so good in their marketplace that they could move yeah. and they choose you every year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, because, that's an interesting metric. 
I'm, yeah. I'm interested to know, like loyalty, loyalty to an organization or loyalty to uh, a person in that organization. I mean, I. Well, that may be why they stay. I mean, so why yeah. do people stay? I, and again, yeah. I'm going to go back to those. I think believe I have four. believe is purpose, meaning yeah. I think we stay because the organization gives me. And you talked about purpose as as critical. I can't remember the word you use, but you, I think you use the word purpose. Yeah. I think second is uh, belong, community, yeah. relationships, yeah. loyalty to a people, to a team. Yeah. I think that is, uh, you know, why do, why do the two of you work together? You, yeah. you have loyalty to each other. That yeah. doesn't mean we get along all the time. Uh, yeah. And become better, a chance to grow. And, and the, the foundation of that is safety, physical, emotional, psychological safety. When, I mean, Jeff Pfeffer stuff, when, when you feel abused in a company, physically, emotionally, socially, you look for opportunities to leave. And 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 that's tragic. That is just tragic. Oh, the the worst thing I think is when you don't have the confidence to leave and you stay, and you're madly resentful and unhappy. That oh. and, and you 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 bring people on that journey with you. <laughs> we often talk about it, the confidence of employees. The worst thing is you have an incompetent employee who's very committed, uh, because they stay forever. And um, in fact, I somebody said yesterday. So what's the greatest human capital? talent organization leadership decision you can make. And I said, place your lowest performing employee in your competitor and tell that employee to keep doing exactly what he or she does. Just do it for them. And uh, they laughed and said, is that funny? And I said, mm, sort of, but, but it's also true. You want to keep your best. So that's where John and, and TJ, you know, you, you build that employee experience around personalization. Yeah. That's where I, Linda Grant and I just, Disagree, oh, yeah. and I adore Linda. I adore yeah, Linda. Great. She's been a friend for decades, and uh, I'm only sorry she won't let me write a book with her. Uh, but <laughs> books are out of date. She does almost all her books by herself. She gets Gaga. Her new book is Hybrid Work, and John that or TJ that was the conference theme. I said to Linda, Hybrid Work is about where you work and how you work. Mm -hmm. Technology, asynchronous, synchronous, and where are you at home or in the office? And I said, Linda, I think that's the wrong question completely. I think hybrid work is going to be a moot point in nine months. The real question is why you work mm -hmm. and what you work on. Mm -hmm. Why you work. Is your work giving you meaning and purpose in your life? What are you working on? Are you doing work that will create value for a customer today or in the future? Mm -hmm. Number one, if your work's not giving you meaning, I don't care where you're working. And if it is giving you meaning, I don't care. You're, uh, John's in an office with a beautiful flower behind him. TJ's in an office that stinks, so he has a screen behind him. <laughs> Uh, I'm in my office, which works for me. I'm doing work that has meaning to me. Yeah. I don't care where you do it. Linda, hybrid is not where and how is irrelevant. Well, it's secondary to why you're working and what you're working on. And yeah. if, if I've got a why and a what, I don't care where you work. Yeah. I don't even, if it's face to face, if it's in person, as long as you're creating value for a customer, that's what, yeah. so that you have a job. And as long as you're doing work that means something to you, that's the why. Go for it. It's so funny, like, because, and TJ, I'll let you ask a, a, a question too. Um, but just when, when I look at um, people talking about a four-day week and the like, and I'm kind of going, you know, some of the people who I know are healthiest are nearly working seven days a week because they absolutely love what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the less work I can do, the better, if work works, Work is going to be fantastic for I your love health. The line. If work works, I mean, I people have said, "What's your hobby?" I said, "I like my work. If I didn't <laughs> like my work at my age, I wouldn't be doing it." And yeah. and I think it's, I mean, 
you know, do I like every single thing about my work? Do I like standing in line at the Heathrow airport? No. I mean, that's an IQ test. Do I like Gatwick any better? No. Do I like Dublin? No. I don't like any of the airports, but that's not why I'm working. Yeah. Um, yeah. TJ, I've, John, I love if uh, work is not a four letter word. If it is, go get a better job. Go yeah. ahead and, and don't look to the company to solve that for you. Yeah. I also talk a lot about you or your agent. You have to be responsible for yeah. your mental health. Don't don't turn to your because the minute you say, well, this company gives me bad mental health. My boss isn't helping me. I say that's not your boss's problem. That's your problem. Yeah. Um, you better figure out what you need and then figure out how your needs will help your boss reach his or her goals. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. By TJ, the way, I, I love what you guys are doing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Dave, I was just interested there in um, what public sector or state or government agencies think when they hear your description of the, the stakeholder and the customer, where traditionally they haven't had a focus on a customer as such, and it has been very much about the internal organization and so on. But do they recoil when they hear words about, you know, the the external and the investor and is it a harder message to get across to public bodies yes and no i i love examples as well the best example i know is singapore um and and i love the example the singapore public sector is dedicated to giving citizens and visitors that's external mm -hmm. a good experience in singapore so and you say so what does that mean and once you put that outside in lens on it you say, okay, so we, uh, Singapore, I can't remember who does it, uh, the Singapore airport. Yeah. Well, go to, go to Heathrow, do a 360. What is a, what is a passenger in an airport worried about? Two things, garbage. Where do I throw my little garbage? I have my little hand things that I'm worried about. Where do, <laughs> where do, where do I put garbage and what time is it? Because yep. time in airports is critical. In the Singapore airport there, you are never more than seven paces from a garbage can. And you are never able in a 360 stand and do a circle to see a clock. Mm -hmm. You know what? Somebody in the Singapore airport has thought about that. Yep. They've thought about it. And so the Singapore government, they call it smart nation. We are trying to build a nation through the public sector that serves our citizens mm -hmm. and those who come to the country. Another example, you both traveled in your heritage. So have I, I go through customs and I get a whole host of responses, mostly neutral. But sometimes when I go through customs in the UK, for example, it almost feels like I have to answer questions because they're seeing if I'm a terrorist. I mean, they're they're really, you know, the, you know, are you, you know, what are you here for? How long will you stay? Where are you? Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of a, you know, the worst I ever had is I went through customs. I don't remember where it was. He looked at my passport and he said, wow, it's been a bad five years for you. Oh, my <laughs> that was, God. That was, that was horrible. <laughs> At Singapore, the next time you go through Singapore Airport, they are trained. Now, remember, it's a six, 30 to 60 second interaction. Welcome to our country. Have a great experience. Mm -hmm. You know, that was less than five seconds. Yeah. So Singapore public sector is trying to give their citizens and their guests a positive experience. The, the place that everybody, you know, employees are the same, but the place it gets tricky is economics, financial. Government's not after financial goals, obviously. Um, but the, the, in private sector, the, the key success for valuation of a company is intangible value. It's not financial value. 
Amazon's incredible market cap is not their profit, it's their future profit, the intangible. And I think you see that in the private sector. You can borrow money better if you have a good reputation, if you're intangible. In the political sector, that's called political goodwill. And a lot of public sectors get that. The political goodwill has shifted to the health agencies right now, to education, to military. Where is that political goodwill agenda shifting? And so I think political goodwill is financial intangible value. Customer service is citizenship experience. So I think the logic applies. Um, I, I think public sector is generally less likely to make some of the... Uh, uh, more difficult talent decisions. People often take public sector jobs for less money and more stability. Yep. Yep. Um, and that's inevitable. Mm -hmm. But hopefully you still want to have a great experience at work. My dad worked in the public sector. My grandfather worked in the public sector. I teach at a public university. Uh, anyway. I, so I, I've talked a lot. Other questions or what jumps out at you that I should learn from your well, I've got a page of notes here and I've got to go look up Aaron's book, but just other things that I should know from you or things that might be helpful. TJ, if you want to. No, um, I, I think it, it might be um, useful if we set on the science of well-being. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, because we've kind of just put a, a booklet together to explain to people what, what the whole philosophy is about and, and uh, why we believe there's this really symbiotic relationship between workforce health and the, the structure of, of the organization itself. And uh, that it's about getting down into those deeper issues that organizations get it wrong. And um, it's not light, bright and breezy. It's, it's deep and fundamental. Uh, and it's trying to create an environment where people will behave in the right way, act in the right way, and hopefully deliver to clients and customers, as you um, say. I mean, are, are you hopeful that we're we're getting better. Uh, some days, uh, I tend to be. I like your focus on the future more than the past. I mean, the line I've used before, and it's not a religious line, but it comes in a religious setting. Some prophets tell people they're going to hell if they don't repent. Look at all your behaviors in the past. You're going to hell. You got to repent. Other prophets say, look what heaven looks like. Let me give you a path to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like to be the latter. I mean, uh, you know, are there people who are going to be dysfunctional? No question. I, and and I, 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 can we help them all? No. I mean, there's 10 to 20 percent of the workforce who are bad leaders, managers, people. They're not. Somebody posted on LinkedIn this week, I think. Uh, why are there narcissists in business? And my answer was because they're narcissists. I mean, <laughs> I, it just I, it's a perfect you know, environment. <laughs> it's just one to five percent of the world are narcissists, and it's a yep. psychological disorder, and and it, they show up in business. And yep. so, but I'd rather focus on what you can do. And let me give an example of I think that gives me hope that. So uh, let me take the two extremes: the ten to twenty percent who are terrible are going to be terrible. The ten to twenty percent who are great are already great. Leave them alone. What do you do with the sixty in the middle? Yeah. I think if we can help them see outcomes that matter to them, I was coaching the leader and I, one of my tests of leadership and, and you have the science of leadership, we have all data. It's very emotional. Do I leave an experience with a leader feeling better or worse about myself? What a simple test. Yeah. And, and it's, it's objective, it's intuitive, mm -hmm. it's variable, it's personalized. So a leader I'm coaching, big company, senior leader, 
an employee made an egregious mistake that's going to cost the company an enormous amount of money, a huge mistake, and doesn't want to fire the employee, but says, you know, I'm going to send the employee a note and I'm going to have a conversation. You made a mistake that cost us millions of dollars. You better change what you do or you're going to be fired. And I said, you know, before you send that, may I tweak it? And he said, what would you say? I said, sentence one, I care deeply about you. You have great potential at this company. You made a huge mistake. It's going to cost us millions of dollars. Don't hide from the mistake. You can't. Mm -hmm. That's the paradox. Mm -hmm. But instead of saying you're going to be fired, let's learn from it so that we don't do that again. Yep. Notice, I didn't walk away. You made a terrible yeah, yeah. mistake. It cost us money. You got to learn. Mm -hmm. But you couch that in a framework, I care about you. Yep. You've got great potential. Let us learn together. And and to me, by the way, this leader who did that happened to be an employee who was a distance or did it by email, sent me a note back 24 hours later. He said, wow, I got a response I've never gotten before. And I said, <laughs> that's a good thing. You just <laughs> saved an employee who's yep. good at your company. I mean, this is a brilliant technician who made a bad mistake. Yeah. And by the way, if they make the same mistake three or four times. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it placed them in your competitor. Yeah, uh, but, um, but but so am I optimist? I tend to be by nature, by nature. I'd rather be the prophet that doesn't say, you know, you're going to hell if you don't repent. You know, look what's wrong. I'd rather say, here's what heaven looks like. Here's how you and your company can win. Let me tell you how to get there. Go. Let me go with you. My thanks to the wonderful Dave Ulrich for sharing so much knowledge on this, our first ever work healthy podcast. Join us next time when we interview world-renowned performance psychologist Jim Lair, who lets us into the secret of living a successful and healthy life.